So not only do we need to filter the information so that we can understand it, but then we have to ask the hard questions. What are we not seeing? How can we be wrong? What's another perspective? Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Greg Sattel. Greg is a transformation and change expert, international keynote speaker, and best-selling author, most recently of Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. He is also a lecturer at the Wharton School, and his work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Barron's, Forbes, Inc., Fast Company, and many other top-tier publications. You can find more on his work at gregsatel.com, that's G-R-E-G-S-A-T-E-L-L, and at his popular blog, digitaltonto.com. In this episode, Greg shares insights on writing daily, building your own ideas, seeking different perspectives, conceptual models, and not believing everything you think. Keep listening to learn from Greg's great insights. Greg, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. So you keep across the edge of change, uh, undoubtedly, in all sorts of interesting ways. So how on earth do you do that? I really just pursue kind of interests which change over time. And what I really think is, is most important is that you put in the work every day. You know, you make sure you're taking some time out to read every day. For me, it's really important to write every day, whether I write something worth writing or not. You put in the effort every day. And often I find myself copy-pasting or writing something that's not very good, but you really need the reps. You really need to put in the time to get to the good stuff. As somebody once described it to me, you need to let the muse know you're serious. There's so much to just putting in the work every day. That's great. So why do you write? One of my favorite quotes is from Fareed Zakaria. In the United States, anyway, he's, he's a famous journalist and author. And he says when he sits down to write that the thoughts he thought he had were just kind of this garbled and mumbled chain of, <laughs> of a bunch of stuff. I forget how he said it much more eloquently than I could, but a bunch of stuff that doesn't make much sense. But And obviously everybody can't write. I have other friends who like to do podcasts or to do it in other ways. But, but the idea of that discipline of arranging your thoughts to see if they make sense, 
Because he's right. When you sit, when I sit down to write, that great idea I had, I, I realized that it, it, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. But that process of working through it, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now. So I have old thoughts and sometimes I'll have a thought and I'll say, yeah, I thought something similar five years ago or 10 years ago. And I'll go back to it and I'll say, you know, that's sort of interesting. But something else I was thinking, I can build on that now. And that's really when you how you start building your own kind of idea about things. And it's really important that you are thinking your own thoughts because if you don't think your own thoughts, somebody else will think them for you. And the best indication of what we do and what we think is what people around us do and what people around us think. And we have decades of research that show this is absolutely true. And it's not just the people we know either. It's three degrees out. So our friends and our friends and friends and their friends, many of whom we never met, are all influencing how we think. It's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to persuade people. Because, you know, Ross Dawson could come to me and tell me how to think about the future. And I think, geez, that's a really great idea. He really persuaded me about that. But then what happens the next day? I go right back to those same social networks that formed the way I thought in the first place. And chances are that Ross Dawson idea is just going to fall by the wayside because everything else in my environment is pushing me in a different direction. And that's how we get into trouble. Because generally speaking, we take the most available information not the best sources, what's easiest for us to access. It's called the availability heuristic. So when somebody can tell us about traffic accident statistics, and it won't change our behavior, but the second we see an accident at the side of the road, we'll immediately slow down. And then, so if we happen to make a particular observation or, or, or just our local information is a certain way, that will form our opinions and then we're likely to go out and try and look for data that confirms those opinions and tend to reject data that contradicts, you know, our existing paradigms. Yeah. So the, I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, there's the experience or so what it is we take in, the information, and then there's the, the output, which can come in many forms, just in talking or in thinking or writing and so on. But the writing is, is you know, it's, as you suggest, it's kind of crystallizing the ideas, and you know, which can be a process and come out difficult, but it is this process. Then the, what you write then informs what you read or what you input or the, the things which can shape that to be able to then write something which is even more <laughs> incisive or, or better. So, but digging into the, your point around the social networks, and so this is idea. Of course, we we take in information through our screens or reading or books, whatever. But a lot of it is the people that we connect, we have conversations with, we're exposed to. So is there ways that you leverage your social networks? I mean, sometimes I call them personal information networks. You know, this idea of the networks of the people from which we can draw on for our information or insights. So is there any ways which you try to leverage your social networks to think better and learn more? 
that was the point I was getting to is you have to be very careful about that because they're shaping your thoughts in ways that you don't, you're generally not aware of. And that's one of the powerful things about writing is that you're doing it yourself. And, and if it doesn't make sense, you're much more likely to catch yourself. So I think that whole idea of falsifiability and testing yourself and being very careful about things that you want to believe. Because if you want to believe, you're not going to look that hard for other information, right? Ideas you don't like, you'll check. And again, we know this from decades of studies. When people are in situations where they don't expect to be checked, they don't expect people to call them on stuff, they're much less careful about the information they share. Yeah. So I think everything is, it has to be about being careful. Because you're right, when you're inundated with information, it's important to remember you're only getting a sample a small sample of it because of your social networks, your location, your time, your geographic location, all these different things. You're getting access to different information in Australia that I'm getting in Philadelphia. You probably don't even know who the Philadelphia Eagles are. So I think it's important to, to remember that what we're seeing is only a small part of the information is out there. So not only do we need to filter the information so that we can understand it. But then we have to ask the hard questions. What are we not seeing? How can we be wrong? What's another perspective? And very much to your point, I think it's really important through both social media, but also through your social networks, is to surround yourself with people who challenge you, who don't think exactly the same way you do. The, so going back to the start, you were saying you do lots of reading based on your evolving curiosity. So how do you find what it is you read? Do you, and what formats do you read in? Do you tend to read books or articles? How does your evolving curiosities allow you to uncover what's worth reading? It's funny. I can't stand documentaries. Like, I'm not a documentary person. I also can't stand anything with subtitles. I think because I, I spent so long, I spent 15 years in non-English speaking environments. So whenever anybody said, oh, do you want to watch a foreign film? I said, watch them. I'm living in one. Anything I watch became just a pure form of entertainment. So I've always been very, very partial to books. And I think to, to grasp a subject to really get a hold of it, you need to read three or four books about it. You can't just read one book and say, now I understand that. So I think it's, it's that type of thing of, of when you get interested in something, whether it's an idea or, or if it's worth reading one book, it's worth reading five books. You have to get to that point where you've read three to five books and you've read a, a bunch of different perspectives on it. And then you can start to, to kind of put it in perspective. Do you read a chunk a day? Do you say, here's a particular time of day that I'm going to read? Yeah, I try and read 20 pages a day. Right. Hopefully more than that. An hour a day, I think, is kind of a, a good number. I don't always achieve that. Sometimes I'll, I'll get more. Of course, in the beginning of the book, you're always reading slower. <laughs> And then once, once you get interested, it's, and then of course you, you, you have to make that decision 
once you get to about 50 pages and whether, you know, it's still not interesting, whether you're going to continue to slog through it or yeah. maybe jump to something else that, that's a little bit easier to hold your attention because your time's yeah. important. So, totally. so I always feel guilty when I don't finish a book. No, no, I think it's, I think it's a really important precept is if it's too hard going, just move on to the whatever it is that's enjoyable, which is going to be worthwhile. I mean, there's a few. There's very occasionally, I think, a book which is worth slogging through. But, you know, we, it's not just time. It's, it's enjoyment. And if it's hard work, then I think there's plenty of reading out there which is not hard work and which is beautiful and wonderful. So we don't stigma to just dropping a book anyway. It doesn't keep enough interest. It, it is always, it's funny, you get to that point, you're thinking, well, you know, what's the value of actually finishing this? And, and also, what's the value of jumping to another book I could read twice as fast? Yeah, I think it's dynamic. So you're evolving curiosities. Do you kind of track it as in sort of say, okay, this is what I'm interested in now, this is what I'm digging into, or is it just what, whatever takes your attention? I guess I track it through my blog. That's the way I right. track it. And that's kind of nice because my blog's been going how long now? I think 13, I think it just had its 13th birthday Wow! in August. I lose track, but it's great to have a 13-year-long record of your thoughts. I've been doing it longer, but you're more consistent than me. <laughs> so I need to get back to be more consistent. And it's... It's one of those things where, you know, for example, write a book, okay, well, that's I can focus on that. But when you've done that, you, it's, I think it's important to have the discipline to say, all right, well, there's a thing I want to capture and then to write it. And so I think you know, I admire your consistency in, in getting your ideas, you know, really good, incisive ideas out there. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So you have a, a nickname, a moniker, Digital Tonto. And love to hear about that because I think that's relevant to what we're talking about. Oh, that was just when, when I started my blog back in 2009, it was 2009 in Kyiv and the, in Ukraine and the whole world was coming to an end. And I was reading this article about why you should do a business blog. And I thought, gee, my wife was nine months pregnant at the time. And I went in and I said, hey, honey, I think I should do a business blog. And she was, okay, whatever. You know, she, she was nine months pregnant. And so I went back in and I said, but I need a name for the blog. Because back then when you had a blog, you didn't just name it gregsatel.com. Or now I have gregsatel.com. But back then it was, you know, everybody needed a name. So it was 2009. I knew it needed to be digital something. And then there was this old joke about the Lone Ranger in Tonto. So I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of a cool name, Digital Tonto. And, and, and that's, if I had to do it over again, I, I probably wouldn't have named it Digital Tonto. But I think it, it's worked out pretty well. It, it has certainly uh, well, very well known. But I guess for me, it, just for me, it evokes this idea of uh, learning in the digital space and to 
you know, saying, well, I'm, I'm not necessarily the master or the lone ranger, but, you know, being at a place where I, I, I know I can look out there and to learn and to find things and discover. I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> so the well, part of the idea is building your frameworks and your thinking. So you're obviously very widely read, you know, you share all sorts of uh, interesting references and sources and uh, what you do, and they're not just from business books and so on. But this idea of building your framework of understanding of how an organization works, of how the world works, how the economy works. And so this is an ongoing process. And some of the, you know, you capture a lot of these frameworks or these ideas in your blog posts. So what's the process for you of all of the information you come in to be able to build that framework of understanding? Do you use any ways of, you know, writing uh, notes of drawing things? Is it all in your mind? How do you how do you develop those ideas and frameworks? I really just write for the most part. I'm not a visual person. I'm not a drawing person. I don't know. Maybe I'm not clever enough to, because there's there's a lot of people who are really good at that and they'll draw things out and they're whiteboard things and and I'm not really that great at that. I, I sort of kind of plod along and I keep kind of knocking at it until I get something that that starts to make some sense. And I think I usually don't realize it until later. You know, when when you've put it down on paper and you know, you come back back to it 6 months later, a year later, 2 years later, if it still makes makes sense, you've probably done pretty good. Yeah. And you know, there is lo- you know, there is structure in writing. So I've done been through the process of taking a written article and then distilling it into a visual because there is logic, there is structure and you can one way of representing it visually, another is through the writing, but it's just as valid and that you know that's a common the most I suppose accepted form and the way in which most people are used to taking in ideas. So writing in a structured format does you know tell the story. It does it is a framework. Well I've also seen and there's a Michael Port, who does speaker training, he has an interesting one that he puts his, his students through. I'm trying to remember, he, he calls it content cataloging. So the idea is you have an idea, and then you have a story and a conceptual model. I don't know, the idea could be something about this, about the future, what you do. Or, if, for instance, in terms of what I do when, we, when we're talking about scaling change, we often talk in terms of co-optable resources. So the simplest one is TEDx, right? Because one of the big challenges about change is that people need to embrace it for their own reasons, which might be different than your own. The challenge becomes, what can you give them that they can co-opt as their own to drive this change forward so that you're not pushing them to change. They are pulling, right? You're giving something that empowers them that promotes change. Probably the most successful ever is TEDx. They have thousands of people running around doing all this, millions, if not billions of dollars worth of man hours or person hours to promote the TED conference. And if you ask anybody why they do a TEDx, they'll say they do it for themselves. So that's the conceptual model. And we have a whole conceptual model around that. 
you have the idea of how do you scale change. And then there's a number of different stories that we, ha- that we use to conceptualize that framework so that people can understand it. TEDx is one of them. So those three things where you have an idea, a conceptual model, and a story, I think that's one of the frameworks I've seen that, that I found really helpful. Yeah, that sounds, that's really a, a good, good frame there. So in terms of just your daily information habits, I mean, how do you find and filter and discover the things which are worth spending your time on? There's a, a number of newsletters I get about the news. There's things I follow on Twitter. And, and while I'm kind of getting ready in the morning, having my coffee and waking up, I'm sort of looking at those. And then I start writing. And uh, usually when I'm writing, I'm, I'm writing according to an outline which I've written at some random time beforehand. At any given time, hopefully I have three or four outlines. Once I, st- once I start running out of outlines, that's when I get nervous. So while I'm writing, I'm usually finding gaps and I need to go look for, for other things. So when I find those other things, I link them into the outline that I'm using and I will research them later in the afternoon along with whatever, whatever books I'm usually reading two or three books. So, so the, the framework, the article or what, or the post which you're writing directs you to some research, things you need to find out or some facts or some insights or some background. Usually, yeah. Yeah. Usually there is, and then sometimes I'll, I'll run across something and I'll run across the article and then that will form the basis for an outline and, or if it's an academic paper, and then I'll realize that, that there's pieces missing that I need to go, go run down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, there's a couple of levels. Part of it's factual. I was just doing this little post and I realized I needed to, in making my case, I need to find out the cash on hand of Facebook, which actually takes a little bit longer than I expected to find. But anyway, so now I know the cash on hand of Facebook, which is actually is, happens to be 40 billion, which is interesting. You know, I think that's part of that framework of how do you, well, what are all the pieces fit together? And there's a fact, but part of it is also the context. Sometimes you need to see, you know, dig a little deeper in terms of understanding particular way of, technology is deployed or an example of something or and so you can start to uncover some deeper and richer things as well as that the fact of writing means you want to get things right which means you do the research and you uh, start to build out your your knowledge base and asking what if questions give me an example of how that might happen so i have a great one and you're talking about facebook sort of dislodged it back in i guess it was 2010 or something goldman sachs gave Facebook like a $50 billion valuation. That seemed ridiculous to me. So I started building the whole DCF model, you know, dis- discounted cash flow, and then looking around for different estimates of growth and because it was private then and what their p- profits are and, and everything. And it forced me to ask the question, what if Facebook is worth a lot more than $50 billion? When you see this, when you uncover a new fact, is that true? And if it is true, 
what if there's something else I, I didn't realize or wasn't paying attention to? And always being careful about things you want to be true. That's where you really go wrong. Yeah, well, it's, it's in, obviously from that, be able to recognize when it is you want things to be right or wrong. But if you get, <laughs> once you start to build that self-awareness, it puts you on track. But I think that point around saying, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting when you see something, you think, oh, I doubt that. And, you know, in a way, that's, that, that's the best foundation of research. Read, doubt everything you read and then sort of say, well, how, how am I going to prove this is wrong or check what's right? And that's when you start to really learn stuff. I wrote something not so long ago because I became fascinated about this idea of Elizabeth Holmes and the inventing Anna Sorokin, this young woman who just convinced everybody that she was rich and she was running around like a rich person. She didn't have any money. And Elizabeth Holmes, the same thing. I mean, they fooled some of the richest, most powerful people in the world. And in the case of Elizabeth Holmes, Anybody who questioned her, immediately, they got their lives ruined. These rich, powerful men were so sure. She, and, and she wasn't producing anything. That's the type of subject I really love because that doesn't fit. Like, that doesn't make any sense. These rich, powerful people who are extremely accomplished. I mean, Henry Kissinger was on that board, you know, who you would think would be the hardest people to fool. How could they go hook, line, and sinker on, on something that, that has no fact pattern behind it, was just all smoke and mirrors? And I asked myself, what if people who are smart and accomplished are the easiest to fool? Because they expect to see things others don't. And what if, you know, you go down to like the local bar in Philly those people are much harder to fool because they don't expect to be smarter than everybody else. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating to me because once, once I had that idea, and I, it, it made a lot of sense. And in fact, it's the only thing that can explain things like FTX. Yeah, and it's, that's, I think, a you know, solitary uh, lesson for all of us to, <laughs> to realize that things are not always made they seem. And it's, you know, that's, that's not the, the joy, I think, of digging. Don't take things at their face value. And if you dig, then you learn whatever, whatever happens. Well, also be careful of things that you want to be true. That Elizabeth Holmes was the next Steve yeah. Jobs. Because yeah. anybody who asked any questions about it, it became immediately obvious to them that, that, it, that it was a fraud. There were many people over the years who were whistleblowers. They were just sh shut down. So to round out, Greg, <clears throat> do you have, what, uh, what advice do you have for somebody that's uh, looking to thrive in a world of uh, unlimited information? Don't believe everything you think. Great advice. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me, Ralph. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.